If I were asked to put together a top 10 list of the top 10 things that are great about being a Christian, right near the top of that list, I'd have to say it's that once you become a Christian, all of life gets really easy and simple. And there's no more struggle, and there's no more pain, and there's no more obstacles. That's the best part, right? You agree with me? Is that your experience? You know, there are people who proclaim that message. They make a living of it. There are churches that proclaim that message. Some version of what we call the prosperity gospel that would say that if you just believe the right things or give enough money or participate in the right activities, then God will bless you. You'll flourish. You'll have health and wealth and everything will be perfect. That's their version. A faith that leads to kind of an easy street life. So the question, of course, is does that align with the testimony of Scripture? Is faith some sort of guarantee that everything will go just very smoothly? Is it a guarantee that we will have no more trials and moments of despair? That's what we want to talk about this morning. As we begin our study of Exodus, I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1. But before we dig into the text, I want to maybe give a bit of an overarching intro to the series itself. You know, a couple weeks ago, Jeff talked about how of all the time that we spend doing different things in our life, it's a mere 1%, 1% that we give to gathering together and joining in a life group. And so the question becomes, of all the books that we could study, of all the time that we could kind of dig into God's word together, why this book? I mean, this book was written by Moses over 3,000 years ago. It's the story of something that happened long ago to a people that, that we'll never meet and, and maybe a situation much different than ours. And so why Exodus? But I'm confident that what you're going to find is that as we walk through this book, you are going to see the character of God shine through. Simply put, our God is a powerful deliverer. He is a powerful deliverer. Exodus is a book that echoes throughout Scripture. In fact, one theologian says this. He says, no event of the Old Testament, no act of God before the cross has the same importance as the Exodus. In fact, for the Jewish people, this was the defining event of their faith. See, as kind as we are to walk through this book and maybe think about, of course, Moses and Aaron and, and the parting of the Red Sea, as incredible as that was, we, we sometimes lose sight of the fact that what shines forth on the pages of the book of Exodus is who God is, who he is. So my encouragement to you over these next 10 weeks when we're going to be in this book is to approach it as this, this living message that is for you. This is not some story that is a relic of the past, kind of dusty and dirty over there in the Egyptian desert. No, this is a story that connects to our life. This is not just a story. This is our story. This is our story because if we are people who have surrendered to Jesus, we are people who have been delivered 
And so as we see on these pages, the God who delivers miraculously, I think we're going to find that just what he did is what he continues to do. This isn't just a story. This is our story. So let's begin together. Exodus chapter 1. Now, as we begin, I'm going to have you stay in Exodus chapter 1. I'm going to begin maybe where you wouldn't expect a study in Exodus to begin. I'm going to begin in Genesis. Okay, so I'm going to read to you Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. I think it will become clear why we're doing that in just a moment. Genesis 12, verse 1. Now, the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is what we call God's covenant with Abram. A covenant essentially is a contractual agreement between two parties. It's a promise. And God made a promise with Abram, a promise to give him a people, to give him descendants, to make his descendants great, and to give him a land where he can reside and his descendants can reside. And not only that, but that through him and through his descendants, all the families of the earth will be blessed. All that really transpires after Genesis 12 and really throughout the rest of scripture goes back to this moment that God began to work with this person and with his family. And really, this is, this is really a step that God is taking, a very active step in this reclamation project. He's reclaiming what was lost. We know that as the Bible began in the book of Genesis, right, he created everything perfect. God created everything. And then sin entered the world through the choice of Adam and Eve to put themselves above God. And then over the next 11 chapters of Genesis, the first 11 chapters, things are kind of going from worse to worse. And then in Genesis 12, God makes a covenant with Abraham. And this is the first step in terms of God building a community that is a community of his people that bear his image that shine forth who he is, and he promises to be with them, to bless them, and to dwell among them. All that we read in Genesis follows on this covenant. This summer, it was fortunate, we, we walked through this series of life of faith, and so we read about the life of Abraham, and the life of Isaac, and the life of his son, Jacob. And as we brought that series to a close, we were kind of closing out Genesis, and we spent some time talking about Joseph, and we learned that Joseph was sold into slavery, and he went down to Egypt, and while he was in Egypt, he oversaw this incredible project of guiding them through a, a severe famine. And in time, as Genesis came to a close, Joseph's family, his father and his brothers, ended up coming down to Egypt as well, and that's where the pages of, of Genesis ended. And now as we turn the page to Exodus, it picks up right where Genesis left off. Exodus 1, verse 1. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They came, each one, with his household. So here at the outset, we get a sense of why we have to begin Exodus in Genesis because Exodus is a continuation of the story. 
It's a continuation of what God began in the pages of Genesis. Now, I wasn't a good English student, but I did study enough to know that there are ways that you should begin sentences and ways that you shouldn't begin sentences and ways that you should begin books. And the one thing I learned is that you should never begin a sentence with the word and. But that's exactly how Exodus begins. My translation here says now, but literally the Hebrew word is and. You think about all the great beginnings to books throughout time, right? And Dickens is the best of times, it was the worst of times. Or hardly anything more iconic than the way the Bible opens up. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then we read Exodus 1. And these are the names. These are the names. What's clearly evident is this is a continuation of what God has been doing. Exodus isn't to be seen kind of in isolation from the rest of Scripture. Exodus is really the second chapter of what God is doing. It's a continuation of the blessing that God had brought upon Abraham and on his family. So we know as Genesis came to a close, the sons of Israel went down to Egypt. That's where they were. And Joseph died. And then a number of things transpired. And as verse 2 continues, we're going to read about what occurred. Verse 2 Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. Those are the sons of Jacob, the sons of Israel. All the people who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number. But Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph died and all his brothers in all that generation. But the sons of Israel, now here we make a shift. Now we're just talking about the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. So Joseph and his brothers and all of that generation passed away. They all passed away. Scholars debate over exactly when this occurred. How much time passed between when Joseph went down to Egypt and when the exodus began and there's pretty kind of lively debate about that, but we can say certainly that it was multiple centuries. Multiple generations had come and gone. God told Abram that his people would be in Egypt in a foreign land for 400 years. And then in Exodus, we're going to read later that it was 430 years that they were in the land, but we don't know exactly when that timeline starts, but we do know it was multiple centuries, multiple centuries. So God's people We're in this foreign land. Generations came and went, but what is clear is that God's promise to Abram that his people would grow, that he'd become a mighty nation, well, God was fulfilling that promise despite the fact that they were in a foreign land. If we look at verse 7, there's five different ways that the author, that Moses, tells us about the growth of Israel. They were fruitful. They increased greatly. They multiplied, became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. The literal word there is the land was swarming with them. The clear sense here is that there was just miraculous, abundant growth of the people of God, the people of Israel in this foreign land. God was bringing about a remarkable group of people, a remarkable nation rising up within the midst of this foreign land. 
The other thing that you see here, if, if you listen for it, is in some ways what we see is that the people of Israel and Egypt are fulfilling the very mandate of God that he gave to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1. Remember in Genesis 1.28, he said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the land and subdue it. That's precisely what God's people in Egypt are doing. They are multiplying. They are filling the land. This is a a remarkable growth, a sure sign of God's blessing upon his people, upon the people of Israel and Egypt. And so we know, right, in the Christian life, in the life with God, everything is going wonderfully. You can just expect it will continue like that forever, right? Right? Mm -hmm. Not so fast. Not so fast. Verse 8, now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now right there, it should just cause us to pause and say, okay, this this sounds a little bit ominous. Verse nine, he said to his people, behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them or else they will multiply. And in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So a new king arose over Egypt. It makes sense, of course, if we know that multiple generations have passed, it makes sense that there's a new king or a new pharaoh. That's just the Egyptian title for king. A new pharaoh has come into power. But what's important to remember is it seems as though this is not just a new king in a line of maybe a family lineage or a, a, a dynasty. This is a brand new dynasty. There's a new pharaoh, and this pharaoh has no connection to the past, no connection to Joseph and to the way that Joseph so just wisely led the nation of Egypt through this incredible time of famine. He has no connection, no intimate knowledge of Joseph and his family and how previous pharaohs had said, listen, because of what Joseph did, we're going to treat the Hebrew people kindly. All of that is gone. None of that recollection is in this pharaoh's mind. And as this new pharaoh steps into this new dynastic moment in Egypt, he surveys the scene and he looks everywhere. And what he sees is that there is a problem. There is a growing threat. And it's the people of Israel. The Hebrew people are multiplying at an alarming rate. And he sees that this this could create a problem in the future if they ever would would choose to kind of rise up and rebel, then this would be problematic. And so the new king looked and decided he had to do something. How do I deal with this threat? And so often what seems like occurs is when a new leader who's not walking with God, so he or she is merely viewing things through eyes of the flesh. When they see a threat, it seems like what so often happens is they they decide to respond to that fear by becoming a tyrant, exerting power. And that's precisely what we're going to see this Pharaoh do. Verse 11. So they appointed, that is the Egyptians, appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. And they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and the more they spread out so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. 
The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously and they made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and bricks and at all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors which they rigorously imposed on them. So the Pharaoh sees a threat. He decides we've got to do something about this and his solution is to impose severe labor, severe work on the people of Israel. He said he wants to build these storage cities. Most likely what these storage cities were were storage houses up in a city north in the Nile Delta. And ultimately we know that, that pharaohs deemed themselves to be gods. And they would often build temples to themselves. And they would set next to these temples these storage facilities to hold food and to hold money and to basically allow the priests of that temple to make sure that worship continues long into the future, long after the pharaoh is dead. And that's precisely what this pharaoh wants to do. How does he keep his legacy intact long after he is gone? And so he brings down this back-breaking labor on the people of Israel. I have no doubt that part of what he hoped is that they would be so busy, so weary, that any thought of pursuing romance would be far from their mind. Too tired to think about Romance and multiplication, right? That's the idea. We also know that these kings, these pharaohs, they often could enlist the entire nation in their building projects. But the one thing that we know is that the text makes it very clear that, that the, the severity of what the, the Hebrews faced was far beyond what a typical Egyptian would face as he participated in some type of building project. But what's clearly evident is that despite this oppressive choice by this evil Pharaoh, God continued to be with his people. God continued to bless. They continued to multiply. This evil leader's response to this threat ultimately would would return empty for him. It would return void. He'd look out on the scene. He'd see the Israelites continuing to grow. And so the question now is this person who deemed himself a God looked at the effect that was going on in the people of God. The question is, would he back down or would he continue to rise up and try to go toe to toe with the living God? And in a foreshadowing of what is going to be repeated over and over throughout this book, Pharaoh is not going to back down. Verse 15. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other was named Pua. And he said, when you are helping the Hebrew women give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it's a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. So Pharaoh decides that the brutal enslavement, the oppression of the people wasn't enough. That didn't work. They continued to multiply. And so his mind turns to something more horrific. He decides that what he is going to do is enlist these Hebrew midwives to participate in a massive genocide of the sons, the male children born to the people of Israel. Just a horrific thought. Pretty clear, these two midwives probably were superintendents, so to speak, of a class of midwives, because there's no way they could know about every single birth. And so these, these two midwives, who I'm sure were servants of the Pharaoh, were kind of given a choice. What do we do? 
How do we respond to such a horrific thought? How do we respond to a thought that we know goes against what God would desire? Do we stand up against the very blessing of God ourselves? What do we do in response to this horrific call, this horrific command by this Pharaoh? Pharaoh was essentially saying, if the people of God are going to continue to be blessed, then he will cut that blessing off. He will literally kill the fruit of that blessing. So as we turn to verse 17, we're going to see an important piece of information about these two midwives that's going to impact their response to Pharaoh's command. Verse 17, but the midwives feared God. The midwives feared God and they did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them. But let the boys live. These two midwives feared God. To fear God is essentially just to respect him, to revere him above all others. To say, no matter what anyone else says, his word goes, I will bow down to him and him alone. He is the place where my heart ultimately will kind of bow down and and give reverence. And even as they, they worked for Pharaoh, they may have had some level of respect that you might have for an employer, but that paled in comparison to the reverence they had for God. And they knew because of their fear of God, they could never do that which God calls evil. So they took their lives into their own hands defying the most powerful man in the world. You know, I think it's fascinating as we read scripture, it's really important that we pay attention to what the author, the the text pays attention to. And it's fascinating that throughout the entire book of Exodus, we are never going to learn the name of Pharaoh. Isn't that fascinating? Scholars debate still over who exactly this Pharaoh was, what exact dynasty was it, and they can't quite conclusively determine who Pharaoh was. Most powerful man on the scene, going toe-to-toe with God. We don't know his name. Got no face. But you know who's got a name? These two courageous women, Shifra and Pua, standing up to the most powerful man in the world standing with their God, the God whom they feared. What courage, what courage is on display from these two women? So the question, of course, becomes how will Pharaoh respond? He's shown his character. So the question is, how will he respond? Verse 18. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing? And let the boys live. The midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. Because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. So when the king looked out, Pharaoh looked out and saw that there was not a massive genocide on the scene, right? It wouldn't be hard to see that that wasn't occurring. He was curious, right? Rightly so. And so he called the two midwives in. He asked them, what exactly led you to disobey the command? Why did you disobey my command? And their response is certainly interesting to consider. And I think it may even provoke some conversation when you drive home today. 
because it's hard exactly to understand what's going on there. But at best, we could say they told like a half-truth, right? But really, I think we just need to be honest. They, they just lied. They just lied to him. Why didn't you do what I said? Well, the Hebrew women give birth really quickly. We just couldn't get there in time. We were racing. We just couldn't get there. The Egyptian women, they're slower, not quite as vigorous. The Hebrew women, well, they just give birth quick. What could we do? And apparently, Pharaoh bought it, right? Now, what makes it even more complicated to consider is the fact that it seems as though God comes in in response to, to their action. And he just continues to bless Israel. It's told that the, the people continued to multiply. Verse 20, they became very mighty. And not only that, but in this incredible twist of irony, the very people that, that Pharaoh had put in charge of bringing an end to the multiplication. Verse 21, God multiplies them, gives them a household themselves. This incredible, incredible twist of irony. It's like Pharaoh is saying, hey, I'm, I'm going to stop this. And it's almost kind of an in-your-face moment here. The two women that were supposed to stop it, they had households themselves. God multiplied them. So despite this evil command to the midwives, God's people continued to be blessed. His presence, his blessing with them continued. They continued to multiply. They continued to grow. They continued to be mighty. And now we have to figure out what will Pharaoh do. And as we come to verse 22, we'll see his third solution. Things are getting more and more desperate. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people saying, every son who is born, you are to cast into the Nile. And every daughter, you are to keep alive. If genocide at the hands of these Hebrew midwives wasn't just horrific enough to our senses, just as we imagine what that could possibly be like, it's like things just go one level higher here as Pharaoh basically enlists all of Egypt to participate in this murderous threat, this murderous plan. If you see a neighbor and they have a child and it's a Hebrew neighbor, then you need to throw that son into the Nile. You can let the daughters live. Just imagine how horrific this command in and of itself is. Shows us something of what Pharaoh is like, just his defiance, his, the evil in his heart, really. As I was considering this, I, I, I thought, what would this have been like? And it, it took me back to just that horrific scene that we've heard about that took place in Rwanda in 1994 where neighbor turned against neighbor and grabbed machetes and they began to kill one another. And that nation is still recovering from just that horrific moment in their history. And I just, I read this and I think, what would this have been like? The Pharaoh basically said, hey, the Nile is like the lifeblood of our country, but we're gonna make it into a grave for the sons of Israel. I'd say this is a desperate situation. It's full of despair. The question is, how will it turn out? How will God resolve this threat? And that's what we're going to study next week as we open Exodus 2. As we close this text, I want to consider a few things together with you. 
First thing I want to think about just for a moment is a question that maybe is in your mind or just kind of went in the back of your mind because I didn't quite resolve it is, is what do we do with the lying midwives? What do we do with them? And I am going to offer you this morning a very unsatisfying answer. Okay, are you ready? I don't know. Now, I don't mean I don't have an opinion. I have an opinion. And we could get into the ethical discussion. I don't mean that I don't have an opinion about whether or not God approves of lying. I don't believe God does approve of lying. It's not that I don't have an opinion. It's not that I don't have some thought about what happened there and how it's okay or or what exactly God thought of that. In fact, it's these kind of moments that I got to be very careful because I'm enough of a nerd about some of this theology stuff that I'd love to just go in a corner and say, hey, for the next five hours, let's just talk about it, right? (laughs) No one would join me. But I think there's an important lesson. There's an important lesson in here for us. We touched on it already. But I think this tells us something very, very important about the way that we read our Bibles. See, as we study, as we dig into God's word, it's just so critical that we pay attention to the things that the author is telling us to pay attention to. We believe that God inspired these words, and we believe that as Moses wrote down the words of Exodus, that, that God was guiding that, that process of, of writing down this history, that God was sovereignly overseeing exactly what was being written to ensure that what comes down to us, what's transmitted to us, is precisely what God wants to have transmitted to his people to guide their faith and their living and their thinking about him for generations to come. That's what we believe. And so as we see an author focus his attention somewhere, we believe that God sovereignly ordained and led him to focus his attention precisely where he did. And the simple fact is, the author of Exodus doesn't focus on the lying of the Hebrew midwives. So this really serves as a call to us to keep our our eyes on the ball, so to speak, when we're studying God's word. To remember what is most important, to follow things where the author is taking us, to to look at the message that he wants to convey because that is where the authority lies. That is what God has chosen to give to us. See, it's tempting for us because it's just so interesting. It's such an interesting conversation and there's nothing wrong with talking about it. But I know how it goes. This happens to me so often, you know, you have a great conversation, you kind of end up focusing in on one little thing over here, and that kind of becomes the whole thing sometimes. I grew up in church my whole life, so I know what the car ride home usually is about, or maybe what the lunch discussion's about. It's like, did you like this? Did you like that? You know, I, I do that. I've done that. Oh, but this is a reminder. What has God chosen to focus our attention on? That's where we have to just keep our eyes diligently focused. And for whatever reason, Moses has not chosen to go into all the ethics of this choice by these midwives, but he has chosen to focus our attention elsewhere. I believe he has something important to say to us. God has something important to say to us in this text. And so the question is, what 
can we take away from this text? And I believe there are two big takeaways from this text. The first one goes back to where we began. As we study the pages of scriptures and we consider this very text, we have to admit there is nothing in scripture that would encourage us to believe that somehow the blessing of God makes life easy or that removes us from despairing situations. There's nothing that should make us feel like like we are entitled to an easy life, to a life free of struggle because we are God's people. Now, blessing and despair sometimes can go hand in hand. You know, we could even take it one, one step further. Walking with God in a very, very challenging way means sometimes that people will hate us because we walk with God. Being blessed by God doesn't even guarantee that those around us will like us. Isn't it so interesting that that what Pharaoh was so upset about here is the people were growing, which was a clear indication that God was with them. God was blessing them. That's what he was so mad about. As we walk through life, have we slowly, subtly been led to believe that that because we are with God, because his blessing is upon us, because he promises to never leave us or forsake us, everything should be wonderful. I know when we write the prosperity gospel idea large, I know that we say, oh, we know that's not true, but, but I do think just being human, I think sometimes we let that idea slip into our minds just a little bit. It should be easier. It should be easier. If God were with me, it'd be easier. If God were with me, I think I'd, I'd be a little more well-liked or I'd be a little more prosperous in this world. Uh, but we won't find that in the pages of Scripture. In fact, we find just the opposite. You remember when Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples, he looked at them and he said, if the world hates you, remember they hated me before they hated you. So as we walk through life, maybe we step into a new venture and we believe God's hand is upon us and we believe, man, God led me to this and then we step into the reality of the situation and it's a nightmare. Do we allow that moment to start to cause us to question whether God is with us, whether he's really blessing us? Took steps that we just believe that God God called us to take, perhaps we started dating someone and and you kind of let the wall down and you were vulnerable and then it just ended up being so painful and you say, God, why? Are you really with me? I know years ago when eight of us from this very body stepped on to a plane to fly to Spain, we we were absolutely sure that God led us to, to do that. Still believe that to this day but I can tell you they were four of the hardest years of my life. Now the simple truth is that blessing and despair can often go hand in hand. And so when that happens, how will we respond? Will we respond by questioning God and saying, how could you let this happen? Or will we, will we cling to the truth that even when circumstances are difficult, he is with us? He is with us. He is present with us, and he is a promise keeper. 
He is a God who keeps his promises and he promises to never leave us or forsake us. And not only that, he's faithful to his promises. He's also faithful to those whom he's made promises with. He's faithful to you. He's faithful to me. He was faithful to Abram's descendants, even in the midst of a foreign land, even in the midst of the oppression of an evil ruler. He will be faithful to you and to me. The second big takeaway I think is somewhat of a takeaway for all of Exodus. I just hope as we walk through this study, I hope our hearts are encouraged by the fact that God will accomplish his plans and his purposes no matter what obstacle comes in the way. Clearly in this first chapter, we have an evil ruler that has all the power that you can imagine any human being having. And this evil ruler is trying to put an end to what God was doing, making his people flourish. An evil ruler that deemed himself to be God comes up against the living God. And the battle is the most lopsided battle imaginable. Oh, the Pharaoh and all his power, the kingdom he controlled was nothing when he came up against the living God that created the heavens and the earth. God's plans, God's purposes will be accomplished. Nothing can stop him from accomplishing that which he intends to accomplish in your life and in my life. No evil ruler, no evil scheme, no evil plot can overcome what God has for you and for me. He's a God who blesses. Blessing just means that he is bringing good into our life. He is committed to that. And he's a God who accomplishes his plans and his purposes. No matter what despairing situation we face, let us be people that cling to the confidence that comes from knowing that he will accomplish his purposes. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful that there is no one more powerful than you. You brought the world into being. You hold it together. We are so grateful that you are in charge of all things and you are in charge of our very lives. Lord, we thank you that you are committed to us, that you are committed to accomplishing your purpose in us and that nothing will stop you from accomplishing that. And so we do pray. We pray that you would give us confidence, stir up our faith, strengthen our hearts, that no matter what we're going through, that you are with us, that you are with us to bless us, that you will never leave us, you will never forsake us. Lord, strengthen us with that confidence. Give us joy because of that truth, we pray. Amen.